So the psalm begins with this commentary note to the choir master. I'm going to turn back. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Many of you are familiar with the backstory here, but I will summarize it for you from 2 Samuel. It's the time of year when kings go out to battle, and so David's captain and all of the men of Israel were at war, and David, that mighty man of valor, was at home. You'll recall that he was walking on the roof, and he saw Bathsheba bathing, and he lusted after her in his heart, and rather than repenting in that moment... He sent for her and he took her and she came to him. And he lay with her and she became pregnant. Desiring to hide his sin, David then uh, calls for Uriah, who was at war with the other men, Bathsheba's husband. He calls for him to come back under the pretense of bringing a report, wanting to find out how things are going. When really he was hoping that Uriah would spend time with his wife, and so when it became clear that Bathsheba was pregnant, people would just assume that it was by her husband and rather than by David. But Uriah, being an honorable man, wouldn't take comfort in his wife at home while his brothers were out at war. So he unwittingly foiled David's plan to hide his sin. David is committed to saving himself from exposure He hatches a plan to have Uriah killed in battle. Now, sometimes we can hear a story repeated often enough that we forget how to be shocked by it. I want you to think about this. David sent a letter to Joab to have Uriah killed. And how did that letter get to Joab? went by the hand of Uriah. He sent it by Uriah. Can you imagine the scandal had Uriah opened that letter? Can you imagine the fallout? David wasn't afraid of that. Otherwise, he would have sent the letter by somebody else. David wasn't afraid because David trusted Uriah. The level of treachery here is astonishing. So as the story concludes, Uriah does indeed die in battle, having been utterly betrayed by David. And David takes Bathsheba again, this time to be his wife, and she bears him a son. So keep a bookmark in Psalm 51, but I do want you to turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Rather than summarize, I'm going to read the first 15 verses. This describes the events when God sent Nathan to confront David of his sin. And so I'm just going to read them. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb 
which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Notice here that David invokes the name of the Lord in his judgment against this horrific sin. Make a mental note, we'll come back to that. So David says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put your sin away. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Turn back to Psalm 51. Beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. David's sin was very great, and here he beseeches God for mercy. We noted earlier that our goal this morning is not simply to become more acquainted with David's sin. Rather, as we consider these things, we would feel rising in our own hearts an acknowledgement of God's holiness, the perfection of his law, so that we would agree with David's right assessment. As the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And that the Holy Spirit might then whisper in our ear, You are that man. You are that man. Then having our eyes open to the shocking reality of sin, we would come before the throne of grace and beseech God to show us mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. This is our first point in the anatomy of true repentance. A plea for mercy. Now in the next section, starting in verse 3, we're going to see David confess and acknowledge sin. 
but he begins here with a plea for mercy. And I think it's interesting that he pleads for mercy first. Surely knowledge of sin and confession precede a plea for mercy and forgiveness. But when the sin is great, when the sinner comes to a sober knowledge of that sin, it should be no surprise to us that the first words out of his mouth are not a confession, but a plea. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. So here we have the background of David's almost unimaginable sin. And we have the note, the commentary note at the beginning, reminding us of that sin lest we forget the magnitude of it. And now we have a plea for mercy. I do wonder what David would have done had the man in Nathan's story been real and had he asked David for mercy. David was incensed and he had already pronounced the the judgment of death. Does it now seem a bit presumptuous that he would ask God for the mercy of sin, of adultery, murder, betrayal, utter treachery, while he himself was unwilling to show mercy in his heart for the lesser sin of slaughtering a family pet? Does that seem just a tad presumptuous? David is not being presumptuous. Not even a little bit. You see, presumption would be calling on God to forgive him because of something in David that was forgivable. Presumption would be bringing something to God in an attempt to help pay for his sin. What payment could David make? What demonstration could David make in his own heart to engender God to forgive him? David could make no such payment. He could show no amount of of remorse or contrition, no amount of penance to give God cause to show him mercy. And any attempt to bargain, bribe, or prove himself worthy of mercy would be outrageous presumption. So what what did David bring to God? What ought we to bring to God when we need mercy? David brought nothing but a plea. There is nothing in ourselves to engender God to show us mercy. So David pleaded with God to look somewhere else to find a reason. David pleaded with God to look to God's own heart. his own character to find a reason to show him mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, show me love. According to your abundant mercy, show me mercy. This is an astonishing picture of childlike faith. God, don't look at me to find a reason to forgive me. You won't find it there. Search yourself to find a reason. 
David's only hope, our only hope, is that God will show mercy according to God's own merciful character. I ask you to make a mental note of David invoking the name of the Lord in his judgment against sin. Remember, remember he said, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. You might remember in Exodus in chapter 34, when the Lord declares his name to Moses. We read starting in verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Having previously invoked the name of the Lord in his judgment for sin, David now invokes the name of the Lord in his plea of mercy for sin. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This shows us that David understands that his hope for mercy isn't a blind hope. It's not a cross-your-fingers kind of hope. Rather, it's a confident hope founded on the revealed character of God. On his very name. David's plea for mercy is the plea of faith. What kind of mercy does David plead for? The kind a guilty criminal might get when he's given clemency by a judge for his crimes. Clemency can wipe out your punishment, but it cannot blot out your transgression. It can remove your sentence, but it cannot take away your guilt. David shows us by his plea that he knows God's mercy is not merely plentiful, but powerful. We read in Exodus 34 that God would by no means clear the guilty. So what hope can David have? What hope can we have? We're sinners just like David. According to your Abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Blot them out. Make them no more. If you will by no means clear the guilty, then God, make me not guilty. This is the mighty power of the mercy of God. It does not merely pardon the guilty. It takes those who trust in the mercy of God in Christ and makes them not guilty. David continues this thought in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David didn't want to simply escape the penalty of sin. He wanted his sin taken away. And he called out to God with boldness, humility, and childlike faith to do this very thing. So you see, far from being presumptuous, David beseeched God to look to God's own heart, his own character, his very name to find cause to show David mercy. 
This kind of pleading only comes from a heart that's begun to feel the weight of personal and particular sin. David had more than a vague awareness of his sin. He had more than an inkling of his guilt. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This brings us to our second point in the anatomy of true repentance. A comprehensive confession of sin. A comprehensive confession of sin. My friends, our confession of sin must not be selective. Rather, it must be comprehensive. And by this, I do not mean that we must be aware of every sin we've ever committed or every sinful inclination we've ever had in our heart. That would not be possible. David knew that and he prayed in Psalm 19, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So what do I mean by comprehensive? I mean we can't hold anything back. We must confess the sin we know. We must confess all of it. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Have you laid yourself bare before the Lord as we'll see David do in these next few verses? Or are you attempting to hide one of your darling sins? By God's grace, would we feel the weight of our sin this morning? David knew the weight of his sin. He says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This might be the most important and most confusing verse in this psalm. It might be the most important and most confusing verse in this psalm. On the face of it, it seems shocking, even obtuse. After stealing another man's wife, committing adultery, murder, treachery, betrayal, hurting countless other people with severe harm, how can he possibly say his sin was only against God? Is David trying to minimize his sin? Is he trying to avoid feelings of guilt by removing from the equation all of the people that he caused harm? I don't think so. Calvin said, David's eyes and his whole soul were directed to God, regardless of what man might think or say concerning him. David isn't minimizing his sin any more than pointing to the ocean is minimizing the puddle. The puddle is what it is, and the ocean is what it is. See, the measure of mercy we need is not determined by the measure of harm we've caused others by our sin. The measure of mercy we need is not determined by the measure of harm we've caused other people by our sin. The measure of mercy we need is determined by the measure of the holiness of the God we've sinned against. David knew this. And here we see him not minimizing his sin, but maximizing it. Against you, you only have I sinned and none what is evil in your sight. The extent to which we can relate to this disposition deep in our hearts is the extent to which we are beginning to understand our offense against a holy God who will by no means clear the guilty. 
Nathan said to David, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. Now David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah was apparent, right? That is why he had Uriah killed. He was trying to hide his sin from other people. But whatever coldness of heart David had throughout this entire episode, surely he did not think that he could sin against God and hide that sin in such a way that God would not see it. David was swept up in guilt and pride and the fear of man, so much so that he forgot the true nature of his offense and he forgot the fear of the Lord. Nathan reminded David that it was God who David ultimately and supremely sinned against. Whatever anyone else might say to David, good or bad, it was only God's judgment that mattered. So he says in the second half of verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This was the nature of David's deep conviction of his sin against a holy God. It was the word of God that he utterly despised. It was the person of God that he utterly scorned. And so God would be justified in his judgment against David, whatever that judgment would be. So if anyone might be tempted to examine David's discipline and how many people had to suffer for David's sin and then question God's judgment, that these words set the record straight on that account. God is justified in whatever he says and blameless in whatever he does. David knew that God was free to judge him as he saw fit. There was no law or exemption that David could point to. There was no loophole that he could hide behind. Any judgment God meted out on David was utterly deserved and any mercy God showed him was utterly undeserved. So David acquits God entirely of any wrongdoing and acknowledges and confesses the depth of his sinfulness. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David knew his sin ran deeper than his record of wrongs. He knew it had roots deep in his heart. Roots that he didn't even put there, but were there from his conception, passed all the way from his mother, all the way from Adam. He was a child of wrath like, like the rest of mankind, a condition we all share. And tracing his sin back to his mother, David is not pleading ignorance here, as though being born into sin somehow excused him of culpability. He says in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He knew God's law. He knew God's truth. Yet he willfully despised the word of the Lord. But here in this verse, we also see a glimpse of God's mercy to David. It isn't just knowledge of sin that got Todd David, is it? But wisdom. David's comprehensive confession of sin, his acknowledgement of God's holiness and righteousness, this is wisdom from the Lord. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. In his confession of sin, David allows no handhold for pride to come in and excuse him or soften the blow. He holds nothing back in his confession. 
David, who previously had gone to such extraordinary lengths to hide his sin, now fully and comprehensively confesses his sin to God. My friends, our confession must be comprehensive. We can't truly repent of one sin while refusing to repent of another. Or is God only holy in part? Did Christ only die for our sins in part? The blood of Jesus is costly enough to pay the debt of all of our sins. And he will pay for all of your sins or he will pay for none of them. My friends, let your confession be comprehensive. As we've been examining the anatomy of true repentance this morning, we've seen first a plea for mercy, followed by a comprehensive confession of sin. And now David shows us the aim of his repentance, which is our third point, a desire for restoration. A desire for restoration. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. As David begins to show us his deep desire for reconciliation and restoration to God, a return to that sweet fellowship that he knew before, he first begins with a repeated request to be washed clean. We shouldn't take this as a lack of faith on David's part. He already asked God to make him clean, and it was the plea of faith he believed God would, in fact, make him clean. This repeated refrain to be washed, cleansed, purged, this is flowing out of his passionate desire to be separated entirely from his sin in order to be restored fully back to God. Even a dog who has fallen into a hole that he can't escape, even as he sees his master and is assured of his rescue, so sharp his feelings of desperation, he can't help but yelp, yep, let out a yelp even as he is being lifted out of the pit. David's sin was a barrier to fellowship with God and in his desperation to see that fellowship restored, he asks God to remove the barrier. Purge me with hyssop. Similar to blotting out, this is more than just forgiveness. David wants his sin to be purged. He wants it to be removed from himself. He later writes in Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Sometimes even as we know that we are forgiven, we can struggle to believe that our sins really truly have been taken away from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. David refers to hyssop here, which was used in the ceremonial law to sprinkle blood on someone who had suffered previously from leprosy. The priest would dip the hyssop branch in the blood and he would sprinkle it on the person and they would be declared clean. David wants to be declared clean. And not a clean as in return to some state prior to his sin with Bathsheba. Like a shirt that needs to be washed after becoming dirty through activity. 
My friends, this isn't an old clean. This is an entirely new clean. David says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's made only possible by the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. How blessed are those against whom God will not count their sin. What joy awaits those who previously under the crushing weight of sin have come to know that God has removed their sin from them entirely. David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. First crushed by his sin, then brought to utter humiliation, broken beneath the purging discipline of the Lord. David anticipates the restoration of joy, gladness, and rejoicing. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Note here that David is not asking God to hide himself from David. David is not asking God, hide yourself from me. This is not like Peter who after seeing Jesus' glory for the first time fell down at his knees and said what? Depart from me, O Lord, I am a sinful man. Depart from me. Peter also knew something of his sin, but he knew little of the gospel at that point. Far less than David does in Psalm 51. Peter being ashamed in the presence of Jesus, begged Jesus to depart. David knowing his own shame fully, pleads with God not to depart, but to hide your face from my sins. Blot them out so they're no more and our fellowship can be restored. David doesn't want to be removed from God's presence. Rather, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In other words, I know you can't dwell with the unclean, so make me clean. I know you can't fellowship with sinners, so blot out my sins. David knew that adultery came from an adulterous heart. He knew that mere forgiveness wasn't enough. Don't just cleanse me of my adultery. Unmake my adulterous heart. Remake it in faith. Create in me a clean heart. This is new creation language and it shows David's grasp of the gospel of grace even before it is fully announced in Christ. David says, give me a heart to love your statutes, to love your precepts as sweeter than honey, a heart that delights in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches, Psalm 119. And the aim of all of this, the aim of all of this is fellowship with God. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Have you felt this kind of desperation? Have you ever felt fear that God might cast you out because of your sin? Take heart. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will never cast out. All who come to me, I will never cast out. 
But is it not understandable that a genuine desire for fellowship with God when threatened by sin express itself like this? Those who are pursuing a false repentance desire a clean conscience and the approval of others. But true penitence desire nothing less than God himself. The truly repentant desires nothing less than God himself and will accept nothing less than God himself. If loss of reputation, livelihood, friendships, and other material concerns are your biggest fear in regards to sin, and I suggest you have not yet begun to feel its true weight. And your plea this morning ought to begin with, God, show me my sin. Help me feel its weight that I too might cast myself on your mercy. David's final request in this section, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy he's talking about here is not the joy of mere pardon, but the joy of full salvation, a restoration to God himself. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of new creation, of adoption. Restore me to you, O God. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Even now as we hit the crescendo of David's desire for restoration, we see an utter dependence on God. Even when he's purged, Cleansed and is given a new heart, a right spirit. David knows he still needs to be upheld. In other words, God, I know I need you to uphold me, but please make me willing. May I not kick against the goads, but rather obey you with a willing spirit. Which reminds us of Paul's words in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you. It is God who upholds you. It is God who gives you a willing spirit. And he will restore the joy of salvation to all who come to him in humility. What does joy in salvation look like? It's more than mere relief of a clear conscience. It's shouts of joy and acclamation and a desire to see others come into that same joy. This leads us into our fourth and final point in the anatomy of true repentance. A response to God's mercy. A response to God's mercy. So if we follow David's example of repentance, joining him in his plea for mercy, confessing our sin comprehensively, holding nothing back, with the aim of our repentance being restoration to our fellowship with God, how will we then respond when he gives us this very thing we ask? Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David shows us the proper response to receiving God's mercy. 
worship, praise, and a renewed vigor to see others receive that same mercy and restoration to God. It says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, which again feels a little presumptuous at first glance, doesn't it? Who are you, David, to teach anyone anything? In fact, it's with unfortunate regularity that we'll see a pastor disqualified from ministry somewhere and then pop up shortly after, often very shortly after in a new church, in a new ministry built around his brokenness as though his sin produced in him some sort of peculiar contrition that allows him to now see the grace of God that suddenly everybody else seems to have gotten wrong all of this time. That indeed is presumption. But that's not what's happening here. First, consider that David was God's anointed king of Israel. Abdication wasn't an option for him. He couldn't step down even had he wanted to. Certainly there are roles that are good and proper to step down from after committing disqualifying sin, whether a pastor, after gross sexual sin, a judge after taking a bribe, an accountant, after committing embezzlement. There are some roles that even after experiencing true repentance and restoration to the Lord, there's some roles that are best to stay away from, at least for a time and sometimes forever. Then there are God-given roles that can't be abdicated, such as King of Israel, such as Father such as mother, such as brother in Christ, sister in Christ. My friends, if Satan can't see you condemned for your sin, he'll see you rendered ineffective by shame. Has not God taken your sin away as far as the east is from the west? Do not shy away from the work of humble, obedient ministry that God has assigned to you because of the shame of past sins. Rather, as you experience true repentance, having by God's grace taken the log out of your own eye, now able to see clearly, you can with kindness, grace, and an understanding heart, help your brother with his speck. As Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This isn't hypocrisy, but the fruit of repentance, the proper response to receiving God's mercy. It's important for us to note here that David is not pouring himself into ministry as a means of earning mercy, He's not busying himself at church or singing to the Lord in order to engender forgiveness. Note the word then at the beginning of verse 13. That's an important word. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then I will sing of your righteousness. Then I will declare your praise. 
These three are the only verses in this psalm that mention what David himself will do. And they follow in response to what God alone can and will do, namely, show mercy, blot out transgression, give him a new heart and a right spirit, and restore him to fellowship with God. David's response is necessary and right, but let's not forget that it is a response. It's a response to God's mercy. Sometimes I think we can try to jump to the response in order to avoid the pain of repentance. We might recommit to the Sunday gathering. We might join a Bible study or an accountability group. We may increase our service to our church, adding as many religious activities to our calendar as we possibly can squeeze in in an attempt to avoid having to actually part with some darling sin. Oh, repentance is painful. Surely we would prefer to see our fellowship to God restored without going through that fire, without experiencing the pain of a broken spirit. My friends, this is not possible. There is no other way. David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A spirit cannot be broken without pain. And a heart won't become truly contrite before it is first laid low in utter humiliation by the loving discipline of the Lord. See, it's not religious activity that God despises. Indeed, He commands it and we must obey. But He says in Isaiah 1.13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. It's hypocrisy that God despises. And that's what David means here. God does indeed want us to approach him in the manner that he prescribes. Just not in pride. In humility. With a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A heart of true repentance. David finishes his psalm with this. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is a picture of the restoration of sinners to a merciful God. Having once been far off, now being brought near, now receiving the blessings of fellowship with the Lord. We have every cause to be confident in God's willingness to show us mercy when we confess our sins to him. When we approach him with a broken spirit, it's his delight to restore, him to our, uh, to restore us to himself so that we can have renewed fellowship with him and freely worship him, not in pretense, but in spirit and truth. My friends, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. 
So don't take comfort in the false sense of the lightness of your sin as compared to David's this morning. Look to the cross of Christ and there see the full weight of your sin. It's there that God punished Christ for your sins. If indeed you trust in Him. So do not be afraid to confess your sin to the Lord. Hold nothing back. Trust in His character to save with abundant mercy all those who call upon His name. So this morning, if you're convicted of sin in your heart, do not resist the Holy Spirit. Confess your sin comprehensively. Don't walk or jog, but sprint to the cross of Christ and cast yourself on the mercy of God. Trust in His character to save you. And do this with confidence, with faith in the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus. Then having seen his mercy afresh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship and your right and proper response to receiving God's mercy. I'll close with Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what can we say? What can we say to you? after seeing so clearly in Your Word the abundance of Your mercy, the steadfastness of Your love for us, those who have sinned against You, those who have utterly scorned Your name, that You have declared Your desire to show mercy, God. So this morning, as we feel the weight of our sin, we would not be crushed under the weight of guilt, but we would run to the cross with full confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ to cover every single one of them. And recognizing our undeserved forgiveness, God, that we would worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.